I'm joined today by Neil Patamore and we're going to have a fantastic and I'm sure informational and educational chat about what's going on in the industry and bring you all up to speed on all sorts of different things in relation to the motor vehicle block exemption and cyber security and answer some of the questions that we know that a lot of repairers out there will have. Welcome to TechSess, the show that provides the information you need to know so that technology can help your business to be more successful. Hey, it's Mark here with another episode of the TechSess podcast. Now, here at M3 Networks, we have quite a lot of customers that are in the automotive industry, particularly accident repair centres. There's some changes coming up in a few years that are going to affect how repairers can communicate with a vehicle when it's in for repair. So to try and get ahead of the game, I've brought along a special guest, Neil Patamore, to talk to us today about how he sees these changes affecting the repair industry. If you're an accident repairer out there and you're not aware of us here at M3 Networks, we are an ABP recommended supplier. We specialise in helping ensure that body shops like yourself can focus on doing what you do best by spending as much time as possible fixing repairing cars than you do with downtime as a result of not having the right technology in place for your business. We also help protect body shops from cybersecurity, particularly with work provider compliance and ensuring that you're Cyber Essential certified. So without further ado, let's get into the episode and let's meet Neil. Hi Neil, thanks for joining me. Hello Mark, thank you very much for the invitation. Very briefly, let me tell you who I am, where I've worked in the sense of being relevant to this discussion. For 10 years, I worked as technical director for two of the European associations in Brussels. And there, most of the work was with the parliaments of the various committees, with the council representing the member states, and ultimately, and most frequently, with the commission, who obviously are the legislators in terms of the legislation that supports the aftermarket. I've worked there for 10 years. I reached the age where I'd done that, been there, lived out of a suitcase and uh, a hotel for 10 years and had enough, basically. Uh, I'd reached that age where I wanted to come back to the UK after Brexit and maybe replicate what we were doing in Brussels here with the UK. I've worked in the aftermarket pretty much all of my professional life at reasonably senior level. I ran Northern Europe for a couple of American corporations before I went to Brussels. But in all of this, what we're talking about today is what is the aftermarket in the UK going to be able to do with the legislation that the UK government needs to implement, some of which is coming from the EU, vehicle type approval particularly, but other legislation also needs to be considered around things like data and security and so on. So let's get into the discussion. Mark, I think if you ask me some questions, we can start to get into the nitty gritty. And I think that this will logically expand as we go through. Awesome. Well, you certainly sound like the right man for the job here, Neil, in terms of your background and experience. So it's great to have you here and that you've been able to spare some time to come and cover this discussion. So I guess the, the first question, you know, from a repairer's point of view is what does all this have to do with the accident repair industry and how does it affect them? So in simple terms, there is legislation both in Europe and for some years now, two decades uh, or more, which supports the rights of what's defined as independent operators, which is the whole spectrum of the aftermarket. So diagnostic tool manufacturers, workshops, obviously body shops, technical training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole value chain, as it's called. And the first of those legislative regulations was the uh, block exemption. 
And this was brought in in 2002 and revised in 2012 to exempt the contractual relationship between the vehicle manufacturers and their authorized main dealers selling cars as well as parts and services because, of course, they had local monopolies geographically. But in 2012, it was opened up more to allow more competition. And motor vehicle block exemption is based on competition law and includes, in terms of the aftermarket, the ability to have non-discriminatory access to all the parts and the tools and the training and everything else that a main dealer would have. So this is directly workshop against workshop as competitive offers, if you like, choices to the market, which is good. No problem with that because it's the main principle of competition. The downside is that in the last 20 years, technology has moved on. Vehicle manufacturers are entering the market with their own services. So that's not a workshop. That's another layer in this vertical agreement. The other news or bad news, good news, depending how you look at it, is that motor vehicle block exemption will expire in May 2023. And the generic framework of block exemption or vertical agreement block exemptions expires at the end of May this year. The good news is that very recently, the UK government, so the Department for Business, has announced that not only will the vertical agreement block exemptions or the main framework be renewed for six years, but they will also consult on the motor vehicle, so industry sector block exemption to ensure that something is in place to continue from next year. And that's likely to continue, I think, for another six years as well. There are probably a number of reasons why that's six years. I think other legislation needs to be put in place for some of the technical progress, as it's called, in vehicles and services around those vehicles. But block exemption is likely to be renewed and will continue to be the pillar, if you like, of competitive access to uh, technical information, etc. Probably some of the questions I guess some repairers will have is, and especially on the security side of things, is this to do with, you know, preventing vehicles being hacked or anything to do with driverless cars or how does it affect, you know, this kind of thing? Very good question. You've opened effectively the Pandora's box of the way that technical progress is impacting how legislative requirements that are imposed on vehicle manufacturers are being implemented. And I've chosen those words quite carefully. If I explain a bit more, I think two or three things have happened over the last 10 years in particular. One is the way that the consumer sees their car as a sort of mobile phone on wheels or a computer on wheels, and they want to be able to connect their mobile phone to listen to music, to answer emails or download something from Spotify, whatever it may be. Why should they not be able to do that when they're driving, when they can do that when they're in the office or sat at home or whatever? So the connected car has become a reality. That's been exacerbated by the mandating of eCall, the emergency call system that's triggered if you have an accident, dials the emergency services, etc. And that's part of a vehicle type approval. But that's a dormant system until triggered. So the vehicle manufacturers have a cost to implement it in a vehicle and lobbied very hard to be able to communicate with the vehicle and provide remote services, as I've just explained, connecting mobile phones and other services. And in doing that, 
equal just became another subset of those vehicle services. So effectively, they reversed the priority of what the legislation was trying to do to allow them to recover the costs of implementing remote access to the vehicle. So with that, you get into contracts between the vehicle manufacturer and the vehicle owner or vehicle driver. That brings in things like the general data regulation, the GDPR, private data. So there are contracts now between the owner and driver of the vehicle and the vehicle manufacturer, which brings in not just what data would be transmitted from that vehicle, but how it's used, et cetera, et cetera. So that starts to complicate it a bit. But coming back to the, the hacking of the vehicle, we've already seen particularly journalists in the States and one or two others who've hacked vehicles, but that's not the whole story. That's been done generally by going into either the HMI, the audio system, for example, of the vehicle or through the 16-pin OBD socket. It hasn't been done over the air until recently with Tesla, quite interestingly, because Tesla was seen as one of the more secure vehicles. But there is that issue. So leading on from that, and I'll go into this in a bit more detail perhaps later, We've now got regulations coming from UNECE, which is the UN European Committee based in Geneva, who have developed a cybersecurity type approval requirement to address some of these issues. But with that, it brings in a whole new raft of other problems related around how cybersecurity compliance can be achieved. So I think it would be good to go into that. But before we get into that detail, I think there's probably still some other questions, Mark, around, you know, the day-to-day -day practicalities of what's developing in the body shop sector around being able to repair the car, maybe on things like ADAS, what other legislative backgrounds we've got from the RMI, the vehicle repair and maintenance information that's available from existing Euro 5 and Euro 6 type approval legislation, because that's a parallel legislative regulation to motor vehicle block exemption. So I think maybe there's some points that we could talk about from that aspect before we get into the more detailed discussion around the cybersecurity. Okay, Neil, so it sounds like the motor vehicle block exemption is likely to be renewed, but you know, what else is going to help? You know, what else do you see on the horizon? Well, apart from block exemption, because it's on competition law, you have to go to court if you want to challenge a non-compliance. So the European Commission put what's known as the RMI, the Repair and Maintenance Information, in quite detailed requirements into vehicle type approval, which may sound slightly strange because they did it under the Euro 5 emissions legislation, which originally was in 2007. But more recently, they've simplified a lot of the vehicle type approval requirements, not just on emissions, but other stuff as well, into a regulation called 2018-858, which is directly referenced in UK legislation as well, because of course, we want to type approved vehicles to sell in Europe and accept vehicles that are type approved in Europe into the UK. So clearly some uh, crossover benefits. And the RMI legislation that this regulation contains has just been updated in Brussels. The technical issues of what practically needs to be implemented by a vehicle manufacturer, which includes access to the vehicle, access to its data, the vehicle manufacturer becoming a service provider as part of non-discrimination, and some other quite useful stuff as well. 
The UK government's yet to start looking at that detail, but they've indicated to us that they're probably not planning to copy-paste what's been done in Brussels. They want to write their own version. And we haven't yet had the opportunity to start discussing that with them. I think they will, but it becomes maybe a sort of timescale issue to some extent. So that's probably good, but we don't have all the answers to that yet. But the other one that's coming over the horizon that I've alluded to briefly, which is another type approval requirement, is being developed, as I said, in the UNECE. It's a regulation called R155, so Regulation 155. That imposes cybersecurity requirements on the vehicle manufacturers and their vehicles, most importantly. And it has a parallel legislation, which is R156, about updating software. Both of these regulations are important to the aftermarket, as I'll go into in a bit more detail. But importantly, and the reason that uh, the vehicle type approval legislation as a benchmark is so critical, all of the existing vehicle type approval requirements, like braking or lights or emissions, are technically very well defined. It's public knowledge. You can see what the requirements are. You can go to the UNEC website. You can download these documents if you want to read them. Not sure why you would, but you can. But with the cybersecurity, it's different. And it's different in a number of ways. Firstly, there is no detailed requirement to publicly or transparently expose what the vehicle manufacturer is creating as their cybersecurity management system. That's abbreviated to CMS, and I'll use that abbreviation, it's just easier. So cybersecurity management systems are being developed by each individual manufacturer, and in some cases are different across different vehicle models. And this regulation sets the requirements for the vehicle manufacturer to identify a whole range of threats and risks and ultimately mitigation strategies around cybersecurity of the vehicle. But it also includes all of the upstream suppliers, the tier ones and the tier twos, about what they do in their internal or external cybersecurity requirements and how that fits together with the vehicle manufacturer. And that's done on a project basis. So they work with a tier one and they open a project and they work together and ultimately integrate the cybersecurity requirements. All of that then gets into the luminous document, but they write down their whole CMS and present that confidentially at the point that they have vehicle type approval. It's then checked by vehicle type approval authority and if they deem it to be a satisfactory cybersecurity system, they will integrate that as part of the certificate of the vehicle type approval, which interestingly is only valid for three years. Again, something new. Typically, all vehicle type approvals are until the vehicle is scrapped, not with cybersecurity. It's time limited. The big problem is what you then have as a non-transparent cybersecurity management system, CMS, how does the aftermarket get involved in that to get replacement parts approved or to get workshops approved 
or to get diagnostic tools approved with all the various authorizations and certificates that that will involve. Because these are proprietary systems with proprietary requirements. And ultimately, for the body shop or any repairer, and in fact, the wider aftermarket, there will be a requirement to either work with the vehicle manufacturer to comply or to comply with all of the processes for authorization that that vehicle manufacturer sets as their requirements. And that would be different across each vehicle manufacturer, maybe with different uh, tools and certification processes, and will become very difficult in terms of no standardization. So these are big issues. That's the bad news. The good news, and I will explain this in a bit of detail as well. When I was still working in Brussels with other associations and an alliance called AFCAR in Brussels, we worked with the commission and we worked in the UNECE working group to get two particular paragraphs put into this regulation 155. And the scope of the regulation is across all category M and N vehicles, which may, basically means all passenger cars and all goods vehicles. And the scope was defined as this regulation is without prejudice to other UN regulations, regional or national legislation governing the access, and here is the critical point, by authorized parties to the vehicle, its data, functions, resources, and conditions of such access. It's also without prejudice to the application of national and regional legislation on privacy and protection of natural persons regarding personal data. So the good news is that we got that paragraph in so it would allow the Commission or the UK government to develop uh, legislation which would allow access to the vehicle. That's the principle. The second one had very similar wording, but referred to the development, installation and system integration of replacement parts and components, whether physical or digital, with regards to cybersecurity. So we've got these two highly crucial definitions within the scope. The next question is talking to the legislators about how that process and those requirements will be implemented. And in Europe, that discussion has started with the Commission, but it's still at a relatively early stage. And ultimately, what we need is some standardization of process we may try and use what you may have heard of called the CERMI scheme, which is a standardized framework for secure related repair and maintenance information. So it's the abbreviation of security and RMI. The UK government is talking to us about implementing that. They haven't done it yet, but they have to do it in Northern Ireland because of the Northern Ireland Protocol by 2023, so that discussion's already started. And ultimately, what we would like to see is legislation that controls the process coming from the R155 requirements 
have standardized processes and frameworks to avoid unnecessary costs and burdens being implemented. Because the summary of this is that at the body shop repair level, you need to be able to use a standardized process to access certificates that work across more than one vehicle manufacturer and ideally all of them in a way that you can download a certificate coming from a vehicle manufacturer that will allow you to access that vehicle, whether that's a physical connector or a wireless connection, access the data, access the ability to update software, access tools that allow you to do that without being forced to buy the vehicle manufacturer's tools. So you can use the Bosch or the Heller or, or whatever it may be. In other words, to continue to do what you do at the moment, coming from block exemption and the vehicle type approval, RMI, the 858. But security will bring in a lot of vehicle manufacturers' own systems, and we need the legislator to bring that down to a much more standardized in terms of both process as well as cost and ultimately benefit at the practical level of being able to repair that vehicle. Quite a few questions come off the back of that. So that the R155 standard I've read several times and obviously from a IT and cybersecurity professional's point of view, it makes sense to me. You know, I understand it. I know why they're doing it. I didn't know that the renewal of every three years for the cybersecurity management system certificate standards as part of the vehicle type approval. So I guess the first question I had was on that then, if that has to be renewed every three years, and I understand why, because obviously cybersecurity does change quickly and three years is quite a long time in cybersecurity anyway, but would that mean that a vehicle systems would have to be like updated to comply with new standards and things? Do you see that's what would happen? That's the $64 million question. I think the answer is inevitably, yes, it would have to be updated. And it may well be that there will be uh, an HSM, a hardware security module that needs to be changed physically. One of the conceptual discussions, if you like, we had with the commission was exactly what do we do in three years or five years or even 10 years? Because you've designed a system based on a particular hardware or software design in terms of the architecture. But if you want to update that, how do you do that? And is it as simple as just extending the key length of a certificate or is it something else that you need? Is it a proxy server that has to link? You know, there are a whole variety of solutions that could be implemented. And I don't know the answer to the question in absolute detail because I think individual vehicle manufacturers will view this differently. Do they put in a very good and then very expensive cybersecurity architecture at the beginning, or do they keep their costs lower and worry about five years or 10 years down the road, the vehicle owner having to pay whatever it may be, 500 euros or whatever it is, to update a module to keep his car within type approval and therefore still allowed to be driven on the road? I mean, I know when it comes to the compliance side of things, it's the manufacturer's responsibility, but if things change in a few years, like you've just said, will the vehicle owner be the one that has to pay to have, say, where it's either a software upgrade or a hardware module that needs to be replaced to stay compliant? I guess no one really knows how that will pan out, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to buy a car to find out 
you know, a month after you bought it that you've now got to buy an update for something that you didn't know about, you know. So the consumers will, I guess, come out in the wash eventually of how that would happen. And for me, it's quite kind of exciting that cybersecurity is really coming into vehicles because as we know, you've mentioned several things, GDPR, personal information. I mean, I mean, I've certainly jumped into, you know, a hire car and someone's previous phone book records and everything were still downloaded because they hooked up their mobile phone. So there's all these things that kind of come into it. The amount of data that, you know, amount of personal data that your car stores about you as well now is crazy when you think about it, especially with the connected stuff like Apple CarPlay and Android Auto and the, the information that the car is getting from like your mobile phone, like you've said. One of the things that I had spoke about, and I don't know whether this is a little bit far-fetched, it'd be interesting to see your views on it, but one of the most common cyber attacks on businesses these days is like ransomware, you know, where they will encrypt data and hold that data to ransom. And I suspect that we're probably not too far away from these kind of things being affected, you know, on vehicles as well, where, you know, they can lock a vehicle and demand a ransom in order to unlock your vehicle again because once you take control of a system you can pretty much do anything that you want with it and I guess if that happened would there be a response I guess there would be some sort of responsibility on the manufacturer to help resolve that situation or to fix that vehicle for the driver Yes, you're right In terms of what are the threats that could be implemented I think there's a whole range and one of the things that worries me is that the vehicle manufacturers are trying to do the cybersecurity management system, broadly implementing security by obscurity. I'm not a fan of that, but what they're trying to do is to link the vehicle only to their server. And then all access to that vehicle, its data, et cetera, is via their server. From one viewpoint, you can see from a fairly simplistic viewpoint that that may be a good idea as long as your server's not hacked. But equally, that creates a much bigger incentive for a criminal to try and hack the vehicle manufacturer's server because they then get access to every vehicle that's connected to that server. And I think from a, a criminal viewpoint, or maybe even from a, a state, you know, sort of cyber warfare position, the bigger the incentive, the more likely it is to happen. So if you disseminate the way that you communicate with vehicles in a way that's more open, firstly, it's more visible that an attack is being formulated or something. I'm not absolutely the cybersecurity expert, but I'm just aware of the discussions we had in Brussels about how this should be approached. But there's also other aspects which are not just legislators, but member states and the police and other security uh, functions want access or want to be able to access vehicles to stop criminals using them in a way that perhaps they could be tracked or they could be stopped in the sense of you just turn off the engine if it's being chased, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole variety of almost conflicting approaches in terms of should a vehicle be wholly locked down? Should it be open? Who should have access to it? Under what conditions? But ultimately, from a cybersecurity viewpoint, I don't think the aftermarket associations are arguing at all that we should be authorized and that there should be a process to that. I think that's a, an absolute necessity. But on the other side of the coin, who decides who can be authorized under what conditions? And then who has the rights and roles 
in terms of access to the vehicle, access to its resources, maybe to do edge computing, especially with real-time data applications, maybe linking to the HMI to communicate with the, the driver or other vehicle occupants to propose services or quotations and so on, because that's already being done by vehicle manufacturers. So there is a requirement for the vehicle manufacturers to open up, but they want to do that through their server. And that brings in all sorts of antitrust and conflict of interest and process requirements and costs and conditions. And they've already shown that they want to impose costs and burdens which would make the aftermarket uncompetitive. There's a lot of detail in that discussion. Obviously, there's already, you know, manufacturer approval for body shops. So we work with a lot of body shops that, you know, are, you know, BMW approved or Ford approved or whoever, right? From a few discussions I've had, some body shops have said that, well, if we're already BMW approved, then we'll automatically, you know, get access to all this stuff when the cybersecurity requirements kind of kick into effect and things. So they don't seem to be too overly concerned. Do you think that if you're already manufacturer approved for repair that you will automatically be able to be granted access to communicate with vehicles? Or do you think there'll be some other requirements that they will have to meet? In principle, it should allow you to be on the same level as a full authorized repairer. But my experience is that that's not the way it happens. For a variety of reasons, they want to minimize exposure and risk and attack interfaces, etc. So they may implement different levels. I'm very aware, for example, that vehicle manufacturers have different levels of accreditation effectively of their authorized network. Some dealers will do jobs and be authorized to do jobs that other dealers can't. Electric vehicles is a good example of that. They have three levels of accreditation. To get to those levels becomes increasingly expensive both in terms of training and equipment and compliance, uh, verification, etc. So it isn't necessarily a level playing field. It may be that they restrict it to a particular use case that is body shop. So you can do certain things, but you can't do other things. It may depend on individual vehicle manufacturers, but I think the biggest problem, and I briefly alluded to it earlier, is that you are locked into individual vehicle manufacturers' requirements. And if you want to work on a range of vehicles as a body shop, which is frequently the case, it's going to get very complicated and very expensive. Yeah, and just for my own opinion, it could be that the independent repairers have to pick you know, a more limited number of repairers that they're going to be approved for and focus on that, which means they might have to turn down repair work for other types of vehicles because if you said if it becomes very costly I mean obviously in an ideal world as a repairer you want to be authorised for every vehicle manufacturer of course you do because then it means you can bring in any type of vehicle for repair and do it authorised by the manufacturer which is obviously what the customer ultimately wants but if that becomes really cost prohibitive and also as you said from a training point of view and maintaining all these different standards then you know it could be very difficult for people to do what they do now which is to have a whole list you know, of approvals, it might mean they have to be more selective on who they actually are approved by. I think absolutely right. The issue, and I think this is an aftermarket issue more generically as well, I think the choice of replacement parts will become more limited, especially those that are fitted to ADAS functions. 
or are in some way working with an electronic function, so electromechanical as well as wholly electrical or software driven and so on, because that becomes part of the cybersecurity requirement. So I think there is a situation here where body shops and workshops more generally as well become somewhere between the proverbial rock and a hard place. And I think there will also be a, a bit of a fight between the insurance companies and the vehicle manufacturers because the cost of repairing a vehicle is likely to increase. So is that good for the vehicle manufacturers because it's someone else's problem and they don't care because they're selling their parts? Or is it that they're not competitive because their insurance category has just gone up? So I think there is maybe a balance there. And I think that Different vehicle manufacturers are already viewing it differently. Some of the more prestigious brands definitely want to keep everything under their control. Some of the more volume-related vehicle manufacturers are more open and are quite clearly courting independent operators to help repair their vehicles because their view is wherever the customer lives is where they would like it repaired. So they have different approaches. And that certainly comes across in the discussions we've had with you know, various vehicle manufacturers in Brussels. But I think because of cybersecurity, there is a second element to that, which is how do you get aftermarket parts approved? Because the R155 implements a CMS, but the framework for that is described in ISO 21434. That doesn't dictate what an individual vehicle manufacturer has to do, but it gives them the complete framework that they have to follow to have what would be considered to be a proposal as a CMS. In other words, they worked to a standard and fulfilled the requirements of that standard in whatever specific way they decide to do. However, as I mentioned earlier, that's geared towards working with their tier one and tier two suppliers as well as the downstream function of the vehicle once that vehicle's been sold. But if I was an aftermarket parts manufacturer and I want to develop something, I have to go to the vehicle manufacturer and request opening a project. And at the moment, there is no requirement for that vehicle manufacturer to agree. And in fact, just the opposite. They have no incentive to agree. They don't want me to be a competitor. So even assuming I can get them to agree, I then have to go through a whole variety of requirements in terms of designing the product to be cyber secure. And that may cut across IPR and patent, which may come from a tier one. So that would have to be agreed with the tier one. They may not want to agree that either. Then you have to go through a testing process to get it validated and certificated. Then you have to have the complete distribution audit trail. So if that part's fitted to a car, whether that's in a body shop or by a roadside breakdown organization or a workshop, and that part becomes a cybersecurity update or recall issue, then you need all of that audit trail. That's only going to last three years. How do you know if the vehicle is 10 years old, where that vehicle now is? And ultimately, who pays for that update process from an aftermarket parts supplier? So there are a whole variety of quite big issues about having a choice of parts. And that will apply to software and diagnostic tools and 
the way that a vehicle is repaired, you know, are you locked into the complete repair process of the individual vehicle manufacturer? The answer is probably yes, because that's what they will dictate. And that's not recognized by other vehicle manufacturers. That's your vehicle manufacturer process, and that's the way it is. So there are some big questions within the industry that we need to discuss in detail with a legislator. This conversation is going to blow my mind, and I'm sure the people that will listen to this will be the, the same opinion going, wow, there's just so much out there. I didn't know how it's going to affect things. It's no surprise that when you look at the cost of new cars these days, particularly EV, why they're so expensive, because of course the consumer just sees the physical product. They don't see all this stuff that we are talking about. It has to be done in the background, which is a cost of producing the vehicle. One of the, I guess, last questions I had, which I probably would take a good hazard, I guess, at the answer of this, but just to get your opinion of, it sounds like from everything that, that you've said that if you don't have manufacturer approval for repairing a vehicle, it sounds like you won't be able to repair that manufacturer's vehicles going forward at all unless you are approved by them. Yeah, at the moment, that's probably where we are uh, as of today. I think what needs to be done in terms of updating the legislation or even introducing new requirements within the legislation as a new legislative approach, I won't go into detail, but there is almost a necessity for legislation to be more dynamic it needs to be updated much more frequently than it is currently. You know, we're still trying to implement stuff that was in the original 2007 legislation. You know, we're 14 years, 15 years on from that, and it still hasn't been fully implemented. So that can't happen when we're talking about things like cybersecurity and, and of course, a three-year validity to that. So in terms of today, I think you're right, Mark, the issue here is... We're being forced to follow vehicle manufacturers' processes because they have control of access, for example, through the OBD port. But I don't yet see it as a, a really critical issue. It's a growing issue. We know it's going to develop into a critical issue. We know that they will try and impose and enforce their requirements. But that's exactly the discussion we're having with the legislator to stop what's known in, in legislative terms, abuse of dominant position. And there are primary and secondary levels of that. So there are already principles in legislation. They come from motor vehicle block exemption as well as the vehicle type approval, RMI legislation. So the legislature is very aware of this, but they need to get into the technical detail of what needs to be addressed and they need to understand how that can be kept up to date as processes change, maybe different criteria for cybersecurity change, and they will happen much more frequently than has been the case in the past. So Neil, how are the interests of body shops being considered? Yeah, very good question. The good news is that ABB Club are an active member, and David Cresswell definitely represents, I would say very well, the interests of the body shop in what is an alliance of organizations here in the UK that is directly emulating what we had in Brussels, we still exist very much in Brussels, which is an alliance called AFCAR, which has been around since 1997 and very ably brings together the interests of not just the aftermarket, but some of the other organizations 
like the insurance companies and the leasing companies and so on at the EU level. And AFCAR stands for the Alliance of Freedom Car Repair in Europe. So in the UK after Brexit, I've got involved with David and and other organizations, as I say, here in the UK, which we very simplistically called UK AFCAR. And we've already started to talk to the UK government, to the Competition and Motors Authority with block exemption. We talked to the Department of Transport and the DVSA and and VCA and so on about a whole variety of things that have been discussed in some detail in Brussels, but have yet to be discussed in the same level of detail here in the UK, but they're very open as the various government departments to do that. So this is now an established and active group focused on the interests of the aftermarket generically, but The body shop repair sector is very well represented within that. And ultimately, we will bring to the attention of the government in sufficient detail for them to understand the nuances and the detail of what they need to do to ensure the body shops and the wider aftermarket can continue at a competitive level to be effective in continuing the business models and the competitive choices they have in the way that that happens and the choice of parts, et cetera, that they need going into the future. Well, all it's left me to do is to say thank you, Neil, for your time and for your insight. It's been really informative. I'm sure people will enjoy this as well. So really appreciate it. Texas is an M3 Networks podcast. Find out more at m3networks.co.uk.